Yeah, for as long as it takes. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong and welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. It's Wednesday the 15th of February. Markets are opening around Asia and this is Peter Lewis with the morning's business and finance headlines. Inflation in the US rose more than expected in January. The consumer price index climbed half a percent from 0.1% in December. That's the most in three months. Economists have been expecting a reading of 0.4%. And that translated to an annual gain in January of 6.4%, which was down from December's reading of 6.5%, and the smallest gain since October 2021. Nevertheless, economists had been expecting inflation to slow further to 6.2%. And the data showed across-the-board increases in housing, food and energy. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's government yesterday officially nominated university professor and former Bank of Japan board member Kazuo Ueda to be the next BOJ governor. Mr Ueda is described as Japan's Ben Bernanke by former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. And Japan's economy rebounded at a slower pace than expected in the final quarter of last year, providing a challenge to the new BOJ governor. Japan's GDP expanded by 0.6% on an annualised basis for the fourth quarter, and that's lower than expectations of 2% growth. The figure was a rebound, though, from a revised contraction of 1% seen in the third quarter of 2020. Singapore Finance Minister Lawrence Wong pledged additional measures to support the economy and addressed the surge in the cost of living in his 2023 budget yesterday. Calling it his Valentine's Day present to all, he promised additional measures to help Singaporeans, particularly the more vulnerable and lower-income groups, cope with rising prices. For households, there were more vouchers and rebates, and the Deputy Prime Minister gave handouts to Singaporeans to stave off inflation to the tune of 9.6 billion Singapore dollars. That's 7.2 billion US dollars. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Dickie Wong, head of research at Kingston Securities, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Woods. And if you want to get in contact, then please text 6393-5925, email moneytalk at rthk.hk. We're on Facebook, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3, and also on Twitter at Money Talk Radio 3. In a day of choppy trading on Wall Street, US stocks stabilised after earlier losses following the consumer price inflation report. The S&P 500 closed almost unchanged at 4,136. The Dow slipped 157 points, or half a percent, to close at 34,089. The Nasdaq Composite recouped earlier losses to close 0.6% firmer at near its high of the day at 11,960. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index edged 0.1% higher. Same for London's FTSE 100, which was also up 0.1%. 
Hong Kong stocks gave up early gains Tuesday to close at a more than five-week low ahead of the U.S. inflation report. The Hang Seng Index fell 51 points, or 0.2% to 21,114, and mainland investors have now sold 17.3 billion Hong Kong dollars of Hong Kong-listed stocks since January the 27th via the Stock Connect program, leading to a 7% decline for the Hang Seng since then. Yesterday, the tech index fell 1%. The Shanghai Composite that rose a third of a percent to 3,293. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell 0.4%, settling at $85.58 per barrel. Gold is unchanged at $1,855 an ounce. Treasury yields rose across the curve. Following the higher than expected inflation prints, the yield on the interest rate sensitive six month Treasury note jumped eight basis points to 5.02% and closing above 5% for the first time since July 2007. The US 10 year Treasury bond yield rose four basis points to 3.75%. The dollar followed the reverse trajectory to stocks, rallying in the immediate aftermath of the inflation data before giving up its gains. The US dollar index was down 0.1% by the end of the day. The Japanese yen was notably weaker, falling half a percent to 133.07 against the dollar. The euro is trading at $1.07.5. One British pound buys almost $1.22 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 56 cents. Chinese yuan is at 6.83 and a half in offshore markets. And Bitcoin has jumped back above $22,000, climbing almost 3% to $22,200. A bit of a mixed picture um, around Asia-Pacific stock markets this morning. First of all, down in Australia, the SX200 is down 0.6%. But stocks in Japan are rising, the Nikkei 225 up about 0.3%. The Cosby in South Korea is flat. And it also looks like a flat open for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 8.09 and we have with us, as it's a Wednesday, our regular Wednesday commentator, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Allcroft. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter, on this bright but rather cold Wednesday morning. I've had to put my me, uh, me scarf and jumper on this morning. And uh, put your woolies on. <laughs> <laughs> and also with us, hopefully somewhere warm, is Dickie Wong, Head of Research at Kingston Securities. Good morning, morning Peter. Nice to hear from you, Dickie, as well. And over in Washington, D.C., I suspect rather cold there, is our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Yes, good morning. But I've got a feeling since on Fahrenheit we uh, touched 64 degrees today, we may be warmer than Hong Kong. We don't understand Fahrenheit. We don't understand that, Barry. You'll have to to get to the modern world somehow. (laughs) We're decimalized. All right, let's start with this U.S. inflation data. Uh, Inflation in the U.S. rose more than expected in January. The consumer price index up half a percent in January from 0.1% in December. That's the biggest rise in three months. Economists had been expecting a reading of 0.4%. That translated to an annual gain in January of 6.4%, down from December's reading of 6.5%. 
also the smallest gain since October 2021. But nevertheless, economists have been expecting inflation to slow further to 6.2%. These data showed across-the-board increases in housing, food and energy, particularly rising shelter costs. Uh, costs. They drove about half of the monthly increase. And if you exclude volatile food and energy costs, the core CPI gained 0.4% month-on-month and it was up 5.6% year-on-year. And then super core services inflation, which is a key metric for the Fed, it excludes food, energy and housing. That rose 0.2% for the month and was 4% higher than a year ago. So consumer price inflation is slowing since it peaked at a 41-year high of 9.1% in June last year. However, Barry, um, although inflation is easing, the pace of moderation is also slowing, isn't it? So I suspect it's not slowing fast enough for the Fed. Well, I think the Fed is not surprised. You know, speaking of archaic language like Celsius and Fahrenheit, do you remember when Alan Greenspan used to use that term de minimis, which is not in common usage here in the States? I don't know about in Hong Kong. But anyway, I think this is de, de minimis. Uh, Sure, we had five-tenths of one percent increase in January, only off by a tenth of a percent from the expectation. Now, admittedly, it was down more. The rise was was slower in December. But look, as you mentioned, Peter, it was 9.1 percent inflation back in June. We're now down to 6.4. So the trend of U.S. inflation is indeed decelerating, and that has Mm -hmm. to be a good thing. And I think the Fed will say, right, we're on track and we'll raise one more time at least. Isn't the problem, though, that um, there are some signs that, if, if anything, inflation could start picking up again? Because we saw that uh, pick up in, uh, in used car and truck sales. The housing market seems to be showing signs of a revival. You've got uh, quite robust consumer spending, a strong jobs market all pointing that if, if the Fed wants to get uh, down further down this path of low inflation, it's not going to be smooth and easy. Well, I agree with that as well, Peter. But uh, look, a couple things differ from the 1970s when we really had inflation take hold. One, we don't have any talk of price controls. And 30, 40 years ago, we did. Secondly, you don't have things built into a wage cost spiral in the private sector. You don't see a lot of employee associations saying we've got to peg everything to inflation. So the trend is down. I think it's going to continue. There will be blips, as you mentioned, and we have higher gasoline prices. That was a big factor in January. But I think the trend is uh, is on track. Stuart, what, what do you think about this? I mean, J- Jerome Powell, he said a few days ago that... Uh, disinflationary forces were at play and the markets got very excited about that didn't they but January's numbers don't seem to show much sign of these disinflationary forces at play. No this is true and and bear in mind that US inflation um, has been benefiting I suppose because most things around the world are priced in US dollars the US dollar has been relatively strong unlike in Europe where uh, the average inflation rate across Europe is about 50% higher than in, in the US. It's, uh, it's mm. around uh, 10% still. So you know, the US has been benefiting from this. And if there were to be any weakness in the US dollar, that could actually impact inflation in the US and, and maybe um, uh, get a few spikes on that. But uh, overall, the US seems to be keeping a fairly 
tight control. And the consequence of this is un- undoubtedly going to be that there will be further increases in interest rates um, at the next time the Fed meets, probably. Uh, whether it's 25 or 50 basis points, uh, we, we will have to sort of talk about that when we get nearer to the time. But I, I, my guess is that um, interest rates have still got a little way to go up in the U.S., um, or, and, and, and that's obviously going to come through to Hong Kong as well. And Barry mentioned an interesting point. He said the U.S. doesn't have price controls, unlike back in the 1970s. I'm wondering... Is that maybe the wrong approach? I know this might be heresy to some people, but should there be price controls? Because if you look at China, for example, where inflation is much lower than in the West, they do have a much bigger control over prices, don't they? Is that the right way, maybe? No, it's an anathema to the politics of the world at the moment. (laughs) to bring in uh, controls of that sort, um, the government would probably lose uh, any issues on that. And uh, uh, I think it just would, would go down very badly with the public. Dickie, let's bring you in on this. Let's, let's get a market perspective sure. on this. How do, you, how do you think markets are going to react to this? Well, obviously, the weather is getting cooler, but uh, not the inflation uh, in U.S. Um, just a month ago, um, investors may expect okay, only 25 basis points um, hike for Federal Reserve, um, the session target rates. That's it. And I uh, will sit on uh, b- below 5%. But now the chance is getting much higher when compared to one month ago. Um, the chance is now like a 48.3% expectation that the Fed rate will sit on 525 to 5.5. Mm. So, so that means a still a uh, long way to go, at least three times 25 basis point hike. Um, actually, you can, if you take a closer look to the Hong Kong stock market, you can see um, when the stock market rebound quite significantly, like last um, two or three months, starting from November, Hong Kong dollar getting stronger and stronger, even um, actually across uh, above 7.8. But now, um, in the past two days... It's weakening now, isn't it? Weakening now. Exactly. Touched uh, the lower end of um, the 7.85. So obviously, this is definitely a negative factor um, towards the Hong Kong stock market. Although we already had a big home run in the past three months, uh, time um, to slightly pull back or even a correction, maybe. Um, But obviously, um, inflation is still there. And uh, please don't expect Federal Reserve will stop hiking interest rate Mm -hmm. in the near term at least uh, two or three times, maybe uh, at least two times. So it will definitely uh, affect the the overall sentiment in Hong Kong stock market. Not a, Actually, I haven't talked about the increasing tension uh, between China and U.S. Both con- uh, governments, they're looking for like UFO balloon in the air. So, so obviously the, the, the tension will, uh, will, will continue to... Uh, to definitely affect the, the the overall market sentiment. Okay, let's attention. I mean, yeah. let's turn our attention to Japan because the Japanese government has now officially announced uh, their candidates for the next Bank of Japan governor. Its former uh, board member and professor Kazuo Ueda. Um, to, to be the next BOJ governor. Mr. Oedo is described as Japan's Ben Bernanke by former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers. So, Barry, if it's going to be like Ben, ben, 
Ben Bernanke, what can we expect? Well, Ben was a pretty activist guy, wasn't he? Uh, he had the t- un pleasant task of having to deal with the global financial crisis mm. and he really opened the taps on the money supply he was the one and who first he, introduced quantitative easing exactly quantitative easing so if larry summers is right <laughs> maybe we can get some some further radical policies in japan but it seems that the initial movement in the yen would suggest that there won't be much change at the bank of japan mm. Stewards, what what intrigues me is um, he wasn't the front runner, was he? In fact, he sort of almost came out of nowhere. There were several others um, who were thought to be uh, ahead of him, including the current deputy governor, Amamea, but he apparently turned it down. I'm wondering what it is that's put off all these other people from wanting to be Bank of Japan governor. But the role is actually quite a tough one because, as we know, uh, the Japan- Japanese economy has been stuck in a very narrow band for a very long time. The stock market is um, well down from its peaks. Um, there's been negative interest rates for a, a considerable period of time. And so, uh, and, and, and Japan wants to try to create a sort of inflationary environment where um, interest rates are in the positive rather than the negative. Um, so anybody sort of sitting on top of all that is, is got a, has got a pretty thankless task, frankly. Um, mm. But having said that, it's a, it's a status role, and uh, uh, UADA is probably um, the, one of the best candidates for it based on, on the reports that we're seeing at the moment. And uh, we'll certainly try to um, maintain as steady as she goes policy for the time being. But I think what we'll also see is um, that the Japanese uh, Bank of Japan will slow down its bond buying program, according to other reports that I've been reading. Um, And and that might be quite an interesting development because uh, it has very much supported the Japanese bond market over the last 10 years. Dickie, from uh, whoever takes over, well, we know who's going to take over. It's going to be Mr. Oeda, but he's got a huge, huge task here, hasn't he? Because of just the way in which the Bank of Japan is now so involved in the Japanese economy. It owns more than half of the bond market because it's bought up most Japanese government bonds. And that's worth now more, substantially more than Japan's GDP. So to try and wean itself off of this monetary policy on steroids, it's going to be a huge, huge risk, isn't it? Well, um, in my personal opinion, you know, um, in the past, like, 20 years, um, even, like, 15 years, uh, the pre-era, I mean, before the financial tsunami, um, the Japanese yen is definitely one of the key barometers. Uh, when we take a, a look to the, the, the carry trade, uh, when the, the Japanese, do- uh, Japanese yen strengthen, obviously, um, the stock market will get hit. Um, but um, obviously, at this current moment, I think um, the, first of all, the, the economy in Japanese—I mean, the Japanese economy—is on the right track, and even their um, uh, monetary policy is also on the right track. Um, and although um, Japanese yen rebound quite significantly, but also reflected that um, investor may think um, finally U.S. Federal Reserve will stop hiking interest rates. And no matter at what level, like even 5.25 or even 5.25 to 5%. So I think um, the, the recent gain um, of the Japanese yen or the 
um, or the uh, the market situation may be already already reflected that um, probably a change of the uh, monetary policy in Japan. Mm. I'm I'm wondering, um, maybe Barry, you you have some thoughts on this. If the Bank of Japan does move away from this yield curve control, as he puts it, as they put it, which really puts a cap on Japanese government bond yields, there could be a huge shift by Japanese investors, couldn't they? Because they own a lot of overseas debt. Uh, I think it's something like more than $2 trillion of overseas bonds. If they start selling that and moving back uh, into uh, Japanese debt, which will start to have a higher yield, this is going to have a big impact on global bond markets, including U.S. uh, treasuries. Well, it could, Peter, but uh, we should remember that while Japan is the largest holder of United States government debt, they're getting higher interest rates on that, or at least as they look ahead over the next year or so, they're going to be getting higher interest rates than they were, and they're certainly getting a lot higher interest rates if they switch back into Japanese currency. So I'm not sure about that. I'll let the experts um, on the panel, maybe Stuart or Dickey, have a more informed opinion. Uh, yes, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure there is much to be so concerned about because we have seen um, uh, China roll back some of its U.S. debt that it owns, and it, it owned a very large amount of U.S. bonds at one time. But uh, uh, the size of the bond market, both in the U.S. and globally, is is so big anyway that I I, I don't think it will make that big a difference in the short term. Dickie, I want to get your thoughts on the markets, uh, on, on the local markets, first of all, um, here. We're sort of um, having some profit-taking going on, aren't we, at the moment in the, uh, in the Hang Seng? Uh, we're seeing Chinese investors in particular. Uh, they've sold about 17.3 billion Hong Kong, do- uh, Hong Kong dollars worth of stocks, local stocks, since the end of January through Stock Connect. Um, what's behind that? Well, obviously, uh, right before um, the Chinese New Year, um, investors are way too optimistic about the outlook of the stock market, not only in the mainland Asia, but also in Hong Kong. Uh, but as I said, um, after the recent home run, I'll call it, um, from like Hang Seng Index below uh, 15,000 points, and uh, once we hit um, 22,700, um, we all, actually, uh, most of the um, optimistic, uh, the reason behind of, were definitely fully reflected at that level. Mm. But uh, the increasing tension between China and U.S. and also investors are now profit taking and also like uh, Federal Reserve may have to further um, hike the interest rate will definitely also hit the, the market sentiment. And uh, moreover, like Linkrete, suddenly the big right issue also give a, a big surprise to the Hong Kong stock market as well. Mm. So, like, the, that really the, hit the property sector, didn't it? That Linkrete exactly, rights issue. Exactly, really hit the, 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 the property sector. Uh, as we all know, like in, in terms of um, the debt to equity ratio, um, I don't really see the, the big need of Linkrete uh, to do this kind of like um, a big right issue at the moment. So mm. it obviously gives a very high pressure, a negative effect on all the property, um, I mean, stocks across the world. And uh, also... No, there not, was another fact, property. Vicky, there was another, just sorry to interrupt you, but there was also another factor that was being reported, and that was that the lands departments 
has started oh, to yeah. include new provisions in land sale papers and, and short-term leases, stipulating that the government can disqualify bids or suspend leases for national on national security grounds. How, how big an impact do you think that had? Well, obviously, uh, in terms of the, the Hong Kong uh, market, probably already digested that. Uh, if you ask me, uh, is it a big need for national security law to, to implement and into a law, uh, land sale? I, I would say probably not. But um, investor maybe get already get used to the like national security law to implement to especially it, it, it seems not odd. only puppet. It seems odd, sector, doesn't it? But, but everywhere else, including financial sector, mm. so we have to get used to it. But it seems odd, doesn't it, as to why it needs to be included? Because if you look at the bidders, they're large mainland property firms or large local property firms like Sun Hung Kai or Henderson Land. These are hardly the sort of companies uh, that are likely to break the national security law anyway. Well, um, you may say so. Yeah, you may say so. Yeah, you, you could say that, but I, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that it, every aspect of life in Hong Kong will have some impact um, from the national security law, and this is mm. just tidying up various areas where the, the government can control. If, after all, if it's government land that is being sold, it seems appropriate that they would include that. Um, I'd also like to just go back to what you were saying about this very large amount of money taken out by mainland investors since the end of January. Um, I think you should bear in mind that they were sitting on some very hefty profits, mm. 20% or more profit over the last couple of months from the, from the low point of the Hong Kong exchange um, in, in late November. So why not take a profit? <laughs> you can come back into the market later on. Mm. Uh, there's n never been anything wrong with taking a profit and that's what, what, what I think has been happening right now. Dickie, one other thing I wanted to ask you about. There's been some worries about capital flight from Hong Kong's financial markets. We're seeing the, the carry trade is back because of this big differential between LIBOR and HIBOR so that sent uh, the Hong Kong dollar to the lower end of its band, as you mentioned earlier, and the HKMA, step, HKMA stepped in for the first time this year. There was also this story about Bright Smart Securities, one of Hong Kong's largest stockbroking firms, suspending the accounts of all mainland Chinese customers set up in China from Thursday. What's that about? Well, probably um, the Chinese government uh, taking action towards those mainlander. Um, they are opening um, security account in mainland, not in Hong Kong. So some of the, the firms uh, or brokerages in Hong Kong, um, they take action before the, the official take action. Mm. Well, it, it's, it's not really surprising because in, in the past, like almost more than a year, some of the uh, internet um, or um, I mean, online brokerage, they are aggressively expanding their, uh, their business in mainland China. And um, even they can um, help their customer to open their um, online security trading account, um, mm. even without seeing face-to-face -face each other in Hong Kong. Okay. So obviously, um, this is 
one of the uh, uh, key measurements and the control that the mainland government will take place. Yes, but, uh, but Dickie, I think the, the, the big issue here is that mostly the mainland government is concerned that mainland China residents who have accounts in Hong Kong with brokerages will be buying U.S. stocks, not Hong Kong stocks, through those brokerages. So this is what they're trying to restrict. After all, most uh, mainlanders can now buy Hong Kong stocks via Stock Connect. So that, th- there's no restriction on that and will not be a restriction on that as far as we're aware. So it's, it's trying to restrict the amount of um, uh, or the ability of mainlanders to buy into, yeah. the, into the U.S. market and possibly possibly other global markets. Okay, well, sadly, we've run out of time, but thank you all very much. You heard there, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Allcroft, Dickie Wong, who's Head of Research at Kingston Securities, and our International Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. First of all, in Australia, the ASX 200 is down three quarters of a percent. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen about 0.1%. The Cosby is down. That's off about 0.4%. And it looks like a flat open for the Hang Seng uh, in about an hour's time this morning. Do stay tuned for um, back chat after the news with Janice Wong and Jenny Lamb. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock on Money Talk. The weather forecast for today, mainly fine and dry, cold in the morning. Maximum temperature is going to be about 19 degrees and the outlook is for it to still be cool in the morning in the next couple of days, but temperatures will rise again over the weekend. There is a cold weather warning in force right now and a red fire danger warning. It's 13 degrees, 60% relative humidity. Coming up to 8.32, here's Brian Rook with the half-hour news. The government says it still plans to introduce electronic toll payments at cross-harbour tunnels in the summer and the rest of the tunnels by year-end. This is despite the first stage of its Hong Kong e-toll plan at the Tsingsha control area being delayed by more than two months after drivers complained they weren't ready. Transport Commissioner Rosanna Law apologised, saying that authorities would boost publicity. She told RTHK that over 450,000 tags had now been issued and the HKE toll could be made compulsory in future. She also denied that laid-off toll workers at Tsingsha would lose their severance pay after they were asked to come back to work. I know that some might say that those agreeing to stay on might not be able to get the extra share payment upon the end of the contract. That is not true. Actually, every one of them will get the original promised extra share payment by the management operator. And now, when we announce the extension, I understand that there will be additional extra share payment agreed already between government and the contractor. So there is no question of not getting extra share payment upon the extension. Desperately needed aid has started to flow from Turkey into rebel-held northwest Syria eight days after the devastating earthquakes. A convoy of trucks used one of two new crossings permitted by President Assad to bring in relief, though it has come late. The number of confirmed killed in both countries is now more than 41,000. The World Health Organization says 26 million people require humanitarian aid and the needs are only increasing, as are health risks, with millions homeless in near-freezing temperatures. Hans Kluger is the WHO's Europe director. We are witnessing the worst natural disaster in the WHO European region for a century. But I can assure you that the WHO will remain steadfast alongside the people of Turkey and Syria 
for as long as it takes. The European Parliament has passed legislation which will stop new petrol or diesel cars being sold in member countries from 2035. Opponents of the move had argued it would cost hundreds of thousands of jobs, but supporters insist the law is necessary to move the European Union towards carbon neutrality. The EU's Climate Change Commissioner is Franz Timmermans. The Industrial Revolution is happening whether we like it or not. We can choose to lead it. We can choose to do it in a way that is socially compatible with our values or we can leave it to other parts of the world to lead it and then all we can do is follow and deindustrialize. We need to rebuild our industry on the basis of the future. And finally, Amnesty International says there's been a big increase in the jailing of online critics of Saudi Arabia's government. The rights group says in a report that at least 67 people there have been given long prison sentences for expressing their opinions. And we'll have more news on the hour from RTHK.